1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my gifts to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Father, we just ask, Lord, as we study your word today, that you would work by your Holy Spirit in each of our hearts to draw us closer to you, to feed us spiritually, to make us into greater disciples for you. We're grateful, Lord, that your word will not return void. We're grateful, Lord, that it's powerful all by itself. We're grateful, Lord, that your word will outlive the heavens and the earth. And we just ask, Lord, now as we sit at your feet and learn from you, from your word, that you would make us more like Jesus and that we would be changed from the inside out, not just for our own benefit, but to be salt and light in this lost world and that we would be very invested in one another and serving each other and loving each other. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Most of us know we've been going through a series, taking a little detour from Proverbs, and we've been looking at the Calvary Chapel distinctives, what what makes us distinct. Not that we are the only ones that hold these things or practice these things, but things that we value that may explain why we do what we do. There's reasons why we do everything that we do. Some of them are that, that you see that may not be that good are not on purpose. And the things that are good, we're trying our hardest to, to do things well. And just like the Lord, he... They said of him that he does all things well. That's what our heart's desire is, is to do things well. And so we've been looking at different distinctives. We looked at a calling is everything, that everything overflows from our calling, that God um, equips the called, he doesn't call the equipped, that he uses normal people like us, the foolish things of this world, to confound the wise, to be able to have God be glorified when, some, when he does a work through our lives because people don't think that we're brilliant or have a, a million different degrees or that we're a great, come from a great pedigree or anything like that, but that we're just available and that he does a supernatural work through our lives and, and does something that brings him glory. Then that's what we want. So we looked at that. We also looked at it's Jesus' church and that we should let him build it. That he hasn't called us to build the church. He's called us to build up the church. He's called us to let him build it and have the freedom to build it how he chooses according to how he has said in his word that we should um, be about his business when we come among one another and how we engage the world related to preaching the gospel. That he's given us Acts 2.42 and Ephesians chapter 4 as a model of what the church should be about. That it's not up to leaders to decide what the church is to be about. It's very specific. Then we saw the priority of the word. Why we teach the Bible the way we do. Verse by verse. Book by book. uh, Genesis to Revelation. All of the Bible. There will be no part of the Bible that we say is off limits. It's all. It's given by inspiration. um, It's it's all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine correction, reproof, training in righteousness. And so we look at the fact that it says all scripture 
is given by all of it. All the ones that people don't want to study. <laughs> like Pastor Chuck used to say, you need to give them the, the vegetables and the meat and potatoes, not just the sweets. And so there's things that we don't necessarily want to cover, but we need to cover. We need to hear it. And I can't have my little pet doctrines that I emphasize more than the other ones, and now we're always talking about this subject or that subject. We get the content and the proportion in which God has revealed it, which means that we're emphasizing the things that he emphasizes. And, and so that's so important for, to us. Also, the importance of being empowered by the Spirit. He's called us to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and empowered to be a witness to him. The disciples had education, being with Jesus. They had ministry experience, but they didn't have power. And that's why he told them to wait and receive that power from on high and be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Also, we looked at the gifts are for today. All the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. And they're needed and important to build up the body for disciples to be made. The leaders equip the saints for the work of ministry, but then the other parts of the body use their gifts to build up the, the, bo- build up the body, and both of those together create the disciple-making place that God's called uh, the church to be. Also, we saw last week, we saw grace upon grace, how impor- or last week, two weeks ago, how important grace is related to a place where people can grow in their walk, that we have to be gracious with people. We have to have people, we have to have an environment where people can make mistakes and fail and they don't feel like they're being condemned and all those things. They need to be nurtured and they need to be helped so that they can grow in their walk with Christ. Only a gracious environment facilitates that. A legalistic, harsh, unloving place is a place where nobody grows spiritually. So we have to have that. There are people that wait for months or years to come into a place like this. They have to experience God's grace and God's love. And that leads us to what we're going to talk about today, the supremacy of love. And that's what we're going to look at. If you're trying to find one word to describe God's purpose of creation, God's plan for salvation, and our destiny, the destiny of redeemed man, You couldn't find a better word than the word love. That's why God's church is supposed to be, we're supposed to be experts in loving. Think about that. There are people that are experts in a lot of things. I'm expert in procrastinating, unfortunately, and I'm working towards undoing that. But there there are experts in a lot of things, and God's called each one of us to be an expert in how to love people. And the cool thing, wonderful thing, glorious thing is that he doesn't, to, it doesn't leave it up to us to have our own strength facilitate that love. That he's given us grace and, and all these things in his word to give us the capacity to love people how he wants us to love people. Let me ask you a question. When the world thinks of the word love, does the church come to mind? Do they think of us when they think of the word love? Or when, they think of, when they're thinking of us, it's the first word that comes to their mind. Those are the most loving people I have ever encountered. I would probably say that the answer is no. Now I realize that a lot of that is a diversion or deflection of, you know, they don't want to admit and and be able to acknowledge their need for Christ and anything that reminds them of that, oftentimes they want to diminish and disparage and criticize. And so I understand there's smoke screens that people put up, excuses that they have. I get all of that. But there's plenty of legitimate criticism to go around related to uh, that the church is, is not as loving as it, it should be. And that's, that's true for all of us. None of us in this room are as loving as we should be. And that's something that we're never going to arrive at or be perfect at. And we're going to get our new bodies someday. And we're going to be able to love in the way that pleases God and, and, and is a blessing to other people. And so we have to recognize, though, from church history that there's been little pockets of time related to God out, pouring out his Holy Spirit. And there's an awakening or a revival or whatever. And it's always coupled with a massive demonstration of the love of God. Every single time. You can study it yourself. You can study church history. You can study how God has 
done revivals and, and, and poured out his spirit and all that, it always accompanies, it doesn't just accompany love, it accompanies many things, but one of the things that's always there is a supernatural outpouring and sense from people of the love of God. And Calvary Chapel is no exception. Back in the 60s when the Holy Spirit birthed our movement, he used a human vessel that was flawed and not perfect and all those things. And it was Pastor Chuck. And he had this indifference towards hippies. And he was from a different generation. And he, just, it just didn't, he wasn't drawn to them. But his wife, it, they, she was drawn to them. And she would cry when they would walk down their street. And what's wrong with these people? Why are they they're, they're empty? They're searching and all of that. And she would cry. And he was just didn't understand that as, as the extent to which she did. And so he started praying, though, and he got the Lord's heart. Because really, his wife Kay had the Lord's heart. The Lord loved them, and just like everybody else. And so they started reaching out to the hippies, and God began to save them by the thousands. And love was everywhere. I mean, they, they talked about love and all of that already. It's like they were primed for that message of the gospel. And when you speak to one of these hippies, and I have that were there at that time, they will tell you that um, what they were drawn to, one of the main things they were drawn to when they went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, was the love was palpable. The love was so thick. The love was so strong. That's what they were drawn to. They will tell you it was not the teaching of God's word that primarily drew them as much as they loved that, and they were drawn to that in many ways, it was the love that was there. It was unmistakable, undeniable, and unavoidable when you went there. Everybody was aggressively loving each other, demonstrating that love for each other, preferring one another, outward in their focus, not inward. And it was very obvious that, that, that there was something different about them. So why is that? Why is when God pours out his spirit, why did, one of the primary characteristics that people sense is the love of God? It's because God is love. And the first fruit of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians chapter 5 is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, among other things. God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This fly doesn't love me right now. So it's the fall. It always happens. I just do this and it's no big deal. And I'll keep doing it throughout the year just so you don't, you know, it kind of blends in, you know, and you don't notice it. So when I do that, that's what I'm doing. Um, it's demonic, really, but anyway, it'll, it'll die someday, soon. <laughs> Jesus laid down his life willingly for us because of his love, his immense love for us. The whole plan of salvation, the whole purpose of creation is God demonstrating his love. How he's going to love on us throughout eternity is revealed in Scripture, and what he's prepared for us it's all an expression of his love. When, when the, the disciples were kind of going fishing after his resurrection, he prepared them breakfast and he re, kind of recommissioned them in a sense. He was demonstrating his love. When he cleansed the lepers, he showed love. When he healed people that were blind, love. When he raised the dead, love. All the, When he saved the apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, it was an expression of his love. Everything, you can just wrap it all up in one word, love. So the supremacy of love, having love for one another above all else, is a foundational pillar in our movement, in the Calvary Chapel movement. Now, in our text here, and we're going to go through it not super slowly, but we're, we're going to move on to other texts, but I do want to go through it. He, Paul defines love and reveals that without the motivation of love, no matter what it is, it profits me nothing or it's a waste of time. Let's look at verse 1. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So he's saying even if I were to speak in tongues, if I were to speak in different tongues and, but I didn't have love, it profits me absolutely nothing. See, the context of Corinth is that they were very zealous for spiritual gifts. But they were very carnal in the sense they had an inward focus. It was all about them. They were even using their gifts as kind of like a, they were competing with each other with their gifts and, and all of that. And they were so focused on themselves. They had a self-focus. And the gifts, among many other things, are for other people. 
when you kind of talk about your spiritual gifts, they're really other, the rest of the body of Christ. It's for them. It's not supremely for you at all. And so he was saying, even if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, it's just noise. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now these are significant things. The gift of prophecy, understanding mysteries. Mysteries are things that were previously hidden but are revealed now because of of the, the Holy Spirit's capacity to open our eyes to spiritual things and all knowledge. And though I have all faith that I could I could remove mountains, all of those things are worthless if there's not the motivation of love. He's not talking about self-love. He's talking about love for others. If I'm doing all these things and I'm not doing it to bless others and to focus on demonstrating my love for them, then it profits me nothing. It's worthless. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods, not some, if I, be, if I were to bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. So if he gave everything to the poor, all, all, everyone that he came in contact with, he gave everybody everything that he had, it would be profiting nothing. And I can't, it's hard for me to even believe that he could say at the end of verse 3, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. You can die being set ablaze on a stake. And if you're not doing that, allowing that to happen, or going through that process without love for God, and it, it, it profits you nothing. That's unbelievable. It's hard for me to even imagine that could be true, that I need to be being martyred in love. And you, and you look at history, you look at the different martyrs. You read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. I think every Christian should read that. Um, you see that there was major expressions of love while they were being martyred, while they were being killed. And it's beautiful. And that, that just tells you how supernatural what was going on there between them and the Lord at that moment and the grace. See, we don't understand the grace that God would give in that moment. And he gives a lot of grace. But he's, just think about the love that those martyrs were showing those people and how God, the Holy Spirit, could use that in their lives and, and just brand in their hearts the images and the sounds of their voices and all those things of showing them love even though they're facing death at their hands. How the Holy Spirit could use that and magnify that in their hearts and, and amplify that in their souls and how God could use that. It's unbelievable to think that that could happen, but it, it, it could. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself is not puffed up. Love doesn't put the focus on itself. Love puts the focus on others. Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is all about others. He was the ultimate example of someone that's other-centered. That's what God's called each of us to be, is other-centered. And don't, they don't, love doesn't make, a person that's loving is not making them the focus. They're deflecting focus off of them onto other people. Verse 5, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things. Now, this doesn't mean believes all things doesn't mean that they're gullible. And they just believe anything that comes their way and they don't test things by scripture and all of that. Scripture clearly reveals we need to test things by the word of God. But it's someone that believes and, and, and trusts the right things. And he hopes all things. Endures all things. Now remember, this is all for somebody else. Or, and for God. It's for doing those things because they love God. And they're doing those things because they love the person. It doesn't have a self-focus involved in it. It's important for us to see that. And then look at the, the, how, how lasting love is. Verse 8, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Love will never fail.
But there are gifts of the Spirit that one day when we see Jesus face to face, there'll be no need for those gifts of the Spirit. So those gifts will pass away. But love, his love, will never pass away. And our love for him will endure as well. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So when we see Jesus face to face, we won't have a need for these spiritual gifts anymore because we'll have our new bodies. We won't be progressing in the way that we need to be progressing right now. We'll still be growing, but these particular spiritual gifts will not be in operation because we'll see him truly for who he is and, and we'll be made complete in that way. Then he says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Just like when you're a child and you grow up and you don't have any need for, remember the Fisher Price plane? You know, the little airplane and the little toys and all those things. And, and you, you needed certain things. Do you remember Granimals? Those were clothing that matched and everything. Am I the only one that went through childhood here? I mean, <laughs> Granimals. Who, who remembers Granimals? Okay, yeah, you see, didn't, you didn't nod your head. He didn't say anything. He left me hanging. So now I know, okay, you're with me here. There are things that when you became an adult, you didn't need those things anymore. So it's the same way with spiritual gifts and all those things that we need now to build up the body to bring into maturity. We won't need those things when we see them face to face and we have our new bodies and, we, and all of that. Now, he may have a whole different type of gifts that we use with our new bodies that has another purpose. I don't know. I have no idea. You just, you just never know what he has in store, but it's, it's all going to be for our benefit and expression of his love. But we won't need these spiritual gifts that, like, like we do now. And then he says, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. They didn't have mirrors like we had mirrors now, like we have mirrors. They had brass and metal that they would shine, and that's, how, that's the best reflection they could get. They didn't have this, the kind of mirrors that we have today. But they knew exactly what it meant to, to see dimly right now, but then face to face. So we see just a little bit, we get a little picture of Christ and, and, and all those things that are coming because of what's revealed in his word. We have a, a sense of those things, but nothing like it's going to be when we see him face to face. You're going to see Jesus face to face. I'm going to see him face to face. And God wants me to see him as my savior being rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ and not see him as my judge because I haven't been saved yet and I haven't received Christ. That's not how he wants me to experience my first meeting with him. So he says here, face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. See, God knows us. He knows us way more than we know him. And so we're going to know him way more you know than we do now more in line with how he knows us now we still will not know him to the extent that he knows us even then but he's, we're still going to know him a, a lot more and then he says in verse 13 and now abide faith hope love these three but the greatest of these is love the preeminence of love is clearly demonstrated here in these verses now these verses are so poetic and a lot of times we hear them at weddings and all of that. The poetic beauty of these verses sometimes distracts from how convicting they are. Because just put your name in there, you know. Uh, let's see. Um, Pat suffers long in his kind. Pat does not envy, does not parade itself. He is not puffed up. He does not behave rudely. He does not seek his own. I mean, it's just convicting all the way. I mean, you could put your name in there. Hopefully I'm not the only one that would be convicted on that. But this is perfection. This is like, you could put Jesus in there and it's perfect. You could put him in there. But for us, it's not that way. So it's always a thing where it's not just, oh, this is so flowery and beautiful. And like, uh, just this language is so amazing. And we're awestruck by it and arrested by it. But it really is meant just like the rest of God's word to convict us. And to say, there's a distance here. And, and that distance needs to be closing. We're never going to have it all the way closed, especially in this life. But it needs to be closing. We need to be growing in these things. We need to be more and more loving all the time. And I want to talk about five different things that loving one another does for our lives and give the, uh, 
corresponding scriptures. The first one is, loving one another is obeying Jesus' command. Leave 1 Corinthians here and let's go over to John chapter 13. You have to use the table of contents, that's no big deal. Totally allowed. Go over to John chapter 13. fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I want to begin reading in verse 34, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now Jesus just finished washing their feet. He's, they've already, this is the the night before he's the night of his arrest, really, and and he's demonstrated that he his love for them all this time, all the way the three and a half years of his public ministry, and so they know what love is, they know what it looks like. So he's saying, I'm not giving you a new commandment in the sense that you don't know what love is like. I'm giving you a new commandment in the sense that you need to love one another. You need to demonstrate what I've demonstrated to you. You need to demonstrate that to one another. And so he says, a new commandment. That's pretty, it's pretty substantial. Moses gave the law. And he, and he articulated the Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And notice he says, as I have loved you. Now that changes everything. I can love someone a little bit and be doing okay. But when he adds that other part, as I have loved you, let me see if I can swallow and you can hear it. Mm-hmm. As you have loved me, Jesus? Really? Well, he says, I command this of you, to the extent to which I have loved you, you need to love one another. Well, let's think about how he's loved us. He sacrificed. He died for us. He laid his life down. He was giving. He was said the right thing. He had the right motivation. He, he thought ahead on how to bless people. That's what he's called us to do, is to think ahead and to be purposeful and to go out of our way and to sacrifice, to love till it hurts. That's what Jesus did. He loved us till it hurt. And he's called us to love one another until it hurts. And that means that we have to focus on others and not just ourselves. And in our culture, it's so, it's not only um, tolerated, it's encouraged to have a self-focus and where you're kind of self-consumed and all you think about is yourself. We have to think about ourselves in, on many levels, because that's part of being a good steward of what he's blessed us with. We have to think about those things. We have to manage our lives, our time, our, our, our money, our gifts, our, all those things. But we can't be focused supremely on ourselves. We have to focus on other people. And a lot of that comes through just paying attention to other people's needs and just acknowledging that there's something going on in their lives. And, being, and stop being so busy that we don't have time and have, don't have room in our schedules to, to focus on other people. So it's important. Loving others is obeying Jesus' command. Secondly, loving others is critical for evangelism. Look at the next verse, in verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, it's hard for us to understand how that could be the case. How could loving each other in the church, remember he's talking about loving other believers as Christians, loving other believers. He's not talking about loving the world. He says that in other places. We need to love people and preach the gospel to them and all those things. He's talking about Christians loving Christians. How is it possible for us loving each other to be a, a tool of evangelism for the Lord or be in a vehicle for evangelism? Practically, what's that look like? It looks like Unbelievers seeing us taking care of each other. And when we have needs, we take care of each other's needs. That we sacrifice for each other. That we do things for each other. That we give towards things that we have need of in one another's lives. And we don't realize the extent to which unbelievers are watching our lives and see things that are going on in our lives, even in the church. We don't understand that. But it's true. They see it. 
It makes a difference. Just picture this. Picture every Christian in the world, in every church, aggressively loving other Christians in the church. And and we would become known for that. Don't you think? They would say, those people are the people that, I mean... They love a lot of things, but not like they love one another, boy. Whoo, man, they take care of each other. They're there for each other. They have each other's backs, however you want to say it in our vernacular, our figures of speech. But they, that would show them. And the reason why it's so effective and why it, it's so powerful is they know how diverse we are. They know how different we are. They know our different backgrounds. They know that we don't have a lot in common. That there's, I mean, think of it. We wouldn't probably be around a, a lot of each other apart from the Lord, having the Lord in common. I mean, some of us we would, some of us we wouldn't. But they know how diverse we are, and we're supposed to be diverse on purpose. And they know that the, really the only thing that is truly real, if we're that diverse and we have in common, has to be something that's in reality there in, in, for us to have in common. Like, in other words... The, the Lord has to be real and alive in our lives if there's no other reason why we should be united, but we're united, so that must mean that he's alive and he's changed us and changed our hearts. The rest of the world isn't like that, but we're like that, and so that must mean that the Lord is real. And, it's, and it, what he says about his word and, and the truth of the gospel is legitimate and real, and they will start asking questions, and they'll, they'll want... See, this is what we forget as believers. We forget how unloving it is out there, even though we're out there. Because a lot of times we just are around other believers most of the time. Most of our friends are believers. We spend most of our time with with other believers. And that's okay. But we forget just how conditional the love is out there. We forget just how brutal people are out there. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. That's what we lose sight of. And even the smallest acts of love and concern, I mean... You ever had an unbeliever just be shocked that you would do the smallest of things? And that's all they could talk about for days. And you're like, you realize how small that was? I mean, I barely did anything. And they're so, it's because the rest of the world isn't even close to doing that small thing. But for us, we're, we have the capacity to love beyond even those things to absolutely blow their minds with love. Serving them, practical things. We've heard this, the, the saying, you know, talk is cheap. When you demonstrate love for people, even in the face, I mean, we've had people in the shelters that we sponsor, in the apartments that we sponsor, we've had people, all different lifestyles, all different things that they deal with, and they tell us up front because they think it's going to detour us. Well, you know, I'm this or I'm that or whatever. And we're like, there's no conditions for this. You know, this is what we do. This is who we are. And they're shocked that we still love them and we still care about them. We still reach out to them and help them and serve them. That breaks down any excuses, any lies that they believe from the enemy. It breaks down all those things because you cannot resist love. There's no legitimate objection to love. It just doesn't make any sense. You can try to put any excuse up there, but when someone's loving you unconditionally, it doesn't make any difference. It's just melt your heart. Because we were designed to receive love. That's how God made us. So he says, that's what's going to happen. All men will know that. Notice he says, all there in verse 35. By this all, not some, not a segment, not a portion. All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Critical. Number three, loving one another covers a multitude of sins. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 7. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. I love that. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Notice he says, above all things. I mean, I thought it might be in the top five, top three. (laughs) 
Above all things, have fervent love for one another. What's fervent mean? It means it's, it, the intensity is so extreme that it's undeniable. Fervent love for one another. Now, why would God tell us to do this? That should be a kind of a, an obvious thing, but sometimes we don't think about it. Why would he tell us to love one another over and over and over again? Don't we just naturally do that? No, we don't naturally do that. And, and, and it's, what's interesting about this whole thing that he says here with Peter is that the context of 1 Peter is that they were being persecuted and they were going through extreme suffering. And when we're going through hard times and we're going through difficulty and trials and tribulations, we, it, those things, you know, they distract us. We don't want them to distract us. We want to be not having to deal with those things. But they do. They distract us. And it's important for us to understand in the context of suffering, he says, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. See, one of the things that we say is, well, I would love them, but they're not very lovable. Well, who said that they had to be lovable? Where, where did I don't see Jesus saying, well, you know, you need to love one of the lovable ones. Make sure you love the lovable ones. Well, that's easy. Anybody can do that. If someone really likes you a lot and they just, they just think you're the coolest person in the world, is it hard or easy to like them? It's easy to like someone that likes you. It's easy to love someone that loves you. Jesus said that the, the, the Gentiles, the hypocrites, the tax collectors do that. What, what, what great reward is, is there in that? See, that's the thing we have to understand. God wants us to love the unlovable. We need to be gracious with those who don't deserve grace. That's the whole purpose of being gracious, is you give them what they don't deserve. That's good. So we have to love people even if we don't particularly care for them. You ever heard that anyone say that? I, I love you, but I don't like you. We don't have to like everybody. It's okay. Not everybody likes you. Newsflash. Not everyone likes you. Even if they, you don't ever hear anyone say, I don't like you. People don't say it. They just think it. Aren't you glad that our, our thoughts are not put on the screen or put up on a little window here, a little cloud that says what we're thinking? Man, we'd be toast. <laughs> and we wouldn't have many relationships. You know? But the, the point is, is that we, we, there are going to be things that rub us the wrong way. We're going to have personality. You know what's funny is that people think that when they're new to the church and all that, they think that sometimes that they're supposed to, everyone's supposed to rub them the right way and they're supposed to not get irritated at people and people aren't going to get irritated. It's just, we're just different. We're just, we're diverse. And those things are going to happen. And we have our sinful natures that don't go away when we become a Christian. I wish they did. But God, in his wisdom, decided that they wouldn't go away. And there's reasons for that. So we have to recognize we're not always going to like somebody, but he's called us to love them anyway, even in the context of extreme hardship and suffering. In fact, I, will, I would submit to you that's one of the most valuable times to focus on other people, and it helps us, and it's indirectly, it's not the motivation for doing it, but it's a, an implication of doing that is that we get our focus off our, what we're going through right now in this context. You ever been visited somebody in the hospital that was really, really sick, or they were dying, or whatever, and all they could do is focus on blessing you? They, had, they, they were asking you how you were doing. And you're, you're sitting there going, what do you mean how I am doing? You need to focus on you, buddy. You know, or, no, you're not thinking that. Or maybe you're thinking that, you're just not saying it. Again, it's one of those things. Um, no, but you're thinking, this isn't the time to think about me. I don't have anything important going on in my life that's worthy of talking about in the context of this. But they're focused on you. And they're focused on the nurses that are around them and the doctors that are coming. I've had people, I've seen people come to Christ because of how they were with their nurses and doctors. I've seen nurses come to Christ. I've seen nurses rededicate their life to Christ because the patient that was dying was focused on God and, and those and them in that, in that moment. They were loving the nurses, loving the doctors. They weren't loving the food. <laughs> but they were loving the nurses, the doctors, and all that. And God used all of those things. See, love is the most disarming thing you could ever have related to unbelievers. And we have to be known for people that love instead of being known for people that 
are maybe harsh or are judgmental or all those things. Now, we need to be salt and light and speak the truth and stand up for the truth. Don't misunderstand me. But when, when I'm talking with an unbeliever, they, the predominant thing they need to sense from me is love. And it's amazing when that happens and they don't know why they're drawn to you. You can see that they're drawn to you, but you don't know why that is. And the reason what it is, it's really who it is. They're drawn to Jesus in me. And I've actually told them that before. Because they're like, what is it about you? And they don't always say that, trust me, but there's been a few. What is it about you? Or they say, what is it about you? And it's not good. But you know, what is it about you that, you know, and I'll say, it's the Lord. He's inside me. And he's, he's, you're seeing, you're sensing someone that has a changed heart because of him. And God wants to change your heart. And it's right there for the asking. You just have to humble yourself and admit your need. And it's so powerful to them in that moment. But we're going to need to be able to cover one another's, cover a multitude of sins because we're sinners and we still fall short and we still do things that aren't right. And we have to have love for one another when we fail, we mess up and we hurt people. We need to be gracious and loving. Doesn't mean we have to trust right away. Trust is earned. But we still need to forgive and love people and, and care for them, even in the context of suffering. Lastly, number four, loving one another is the proper response to receiving God's love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. I should lastly, I got one more actually. 1 John chapter 4. And before we get there, I just want to mention that James and John, the disciples, were called the sons of thunder. And there was a point where they wanted to call fire down from heaven and completely incinerate Samaria. And Jesus said, you don't even know what spirit you're of. I mean, that's like calling in patriot missiles or, you know, that's just like... And this is the guy that's writing this? We call him the apostle of love. That's the, that's the, see, but people say, I can't love because you don't understand how I am naturally. You don't understand my background. You don't know, understand what's happened to me. You don't understand what I've gone through. You don't understand how I've been mistreated. I don't have the capacity to do that. Well, you may not in the natural, but as an overflow of God's indwelling of you by his spirit and his work in your life, he can change you into someone that people would say, oh, that's a person that's totally a loving person. And I know that he can do it because he did it with the Apostle Paul. He was just like a little Hitler running around doing all kinds of horrible things and persecuting people and changed him. He's the one that wrote 1 Corinthians 13 that we read. And he did it with the Apostle John who wanted to call, call fire down from heaven to this, as if he had that power. <laughs> the first thing I would have said to him is, okay. Go ahead and try that. Where do you get, think you have the power to do that from? You know, But he wants to call fire down from heaven. And God's changed his love to write this. Let's, let's begin reading. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, and that means satisfying payment, for our sins. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us, uh, given us of the, his spirit. So this is important for us to see because he has loved us and demonstrated that love for us. And, and because of that, the proper response is to love others. That's the proper response for receiving his love. And in part, there's many other ways, many other responses that are part of that. But one of the responses for us receiving his love is to love one another. Now think of it as if you're a parent here or a grandparent, you know when, you're, when one child loves the other, it blesses you because you love them and you want them to be loved even by their sibling. 
Sometimes it seems impossible that it's ever going to happen, but it does. It happens. And so for us, when we love one another, we're loving who he loves. We're blessing him because he loves the rest of us, and he wants us to love one another. That's, that's the whole goal of this. And then he says at the end of verse 13, because he has given us of his spirit. We know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. The, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirits that we're children of God. But he's also given us his spirit to be able to have the capacity to love one another, which we'll get to in a moment. Verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Look at the last part of verse 17. Because as he is, so are we in this world. What does that mean? We're an extension of him in this world, and he's called us to love each other just as he has loved us. And we're an extension of him in this world. In other words, partly how he loves us is by loving us through someone else in the body of Christ. Now, he loves us way independently of that, of course. But part of the way he shows us love is by loving us through other people in the church. And it's beautiful. That's what he says. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Verse 19, this is the Christian faith right here. We love him because he first loved us. Our whole life, our whole Christian walk is a response to how he first loved us. He's not the initiator. I mean, we're not the initiators and he's the responders in our relationship. We don't do things to get him to love us or accept us. We already have his love. We already have his acceptance. And that's been proven through the cross. And because of that, that melts our hearts. And now we want to live a life in worship and in love for him because of what he's done for us. So he initiated it and we respond. And we now love him the rest of our lives and for eternity because he first loved us. But this is the thing that we leave out sometimes. In part, how he wants us to love him back is by loving his other children. And, he, and it matters to him how we treat one another. And he wants us to demonstrate that love boldly. Lastly, look at verse 20. And this is number five. Loving others reveals we are a believer. Look at verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Now, for many other reasons, they're not of God, but this is the main way you can know that the people that claimed supremacy in their race, white supremacy, whatever it is, that's predominantly what we see now a lot of times in, in the news. And we know that they're not of God because they hate. And that's true for all of us. And, and it doesn't have to be race. It could be anything else. If you hate people... And that's, a, that's the predominant characteristic in your life. You don't know Christ. You don't know God. That's what the God's word says right here. And he notice he says there in verse 20 that they will actually say in their mouth that they love God. See, that's the thing. We think, well, well they say that. I can't question that. But John says, yeah, that you can. If they say, I love God, but yet hate their brother, and that's what you predominantly see out of their lives, they don't love God and they don't know God. Well, who are you to judge? I'm no, no one to judge, but I see his word, and his word says that's what is the case. So I'm going to hold to what God's word says. Ultimately, none of us can know each other's hearts, but out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. And, and the, my life demonstrates something, or it doesn't demonstrate something. I notice in verse 21, he says, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So that's, it's required. It's, it reveals that I'm a believer. If I don't have those things coming out of my life at all, and, and there's been no change in my life, I don't care if I prayed a prayer, went down to the front, whatever it is that I am trusting in, though, that's not worth anything. Because if it doesn't come forth, and, and, and as a result, there's things that come out of my life that 
look like Christ and I'm loving people, then it wasn't uh, authentic. So lastly, as I close, how do we love? What are the things that help me love? I know I should love. I know I should love more. All of us could say that. How do I do that? The first thing is to meditate on God's love demonstrated to you on the cross. Meditate on God's love for you. Explore the cross. Explore what he did for you. Explore those things. And look in his word where he talks about that he shows no partiality. He loves everybody the same. So what's the logical conclusion? If he went through what he went through to die for me, and he loves everyone else the same, and he died for them, that must mean I need to love them just like he loves them. It's beautiful. Secondly, spend time with Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love. If you spend time with Jesus, you're going to love people. If you don't love people, you're not spending time with Jesus to the extent to which God wants you to. And same with me. It it just comes by being with him. Since he loves everybody, when you're around somebody and their predominant trait is is there, it starts rubbing off on you. It's kind of the same way. The difference is that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us that produces those things. God's Spirit inside of us producing that love. And so he talks about love in Galatians chapter 5 as fruit. Fruit is a result of something. Fruit is an overflow of something. It's a result of the tree. It's a result of what the tree is. It's a result of the roots being tapped into the earth and getting the nutrients and all of that. It's it's an overflow or implication of being a tree. And so that's the same thing with love. If we're tapped into the Holy Spirit, then we're going to be love. He's going to produce that love. And then also, just on a practical level, agape love means doing what's best for the other person, even at my own expense. It's the best definition of agape love I've ever seen. Christian agape love is is loving sacrificially doing what's best for the other person even at my own expense so if I just look and see what people need and do what's best for them on a practical level that's what's that's the best way to love them Jesus always dealt with the greatest need in the room and so he, he knows what he knows what people need we should know what people need when we see needs we need to be proactively going after trying to meet those needs and caring for people so we'll stop there let's pray together